Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Olympian Agenda. On this week's episode, we read chapters 5 and 6, I believe. Uh, I play Pinnacle with a horse, and then later, I become Supreme Lord of the Bathroom. Now, uh, I play Pinnacle with a horse picks up right after Percy has passed out from going into camp, carrying an unconscious Grover, having hit his head on the rock while fighting a minotaur. His mom has evaporated into some golden light. And basically, he wakes up and he's in a room that is unfamiliar to him. He has no idea what's going on. And every time he passes out and wakes up, he gets so overwhelmed that he just decides to pass out again, which, you know, is interesting um, problem solving, but honestly a big mood. And at one point he wakes up and he sees a blonde girl that we met at the end of the last chapter, but Percy doesn't necessarily remember her. And she's shoving pudding in his mouth. And all the while, she's just smirking up a storm and probably enjoying the power dynamic going on because Percy is just drooling. He's a hot mess, uh, but I can't blame him because of everything that he just went through. But it's just, it's very funny to me that this girl is just so amused by feeding a blubbering unconscious boy pudding. Anyways, it's about, I think, the third time that Percy wakes up, he actually starts to have some coherent thoughts and an understanding of what is going on around him. He hears people talking, and he's learned that something's been stolen, there's something to do with the summer solstice, and then as soon as these people who are talking, that he's not really sure who they are he just kind of vaguely hears their voices they start to enter the room where he and the blonde girl are the blonde girl just shoves more pudding into his mouth to get him to shut up and essentially to kill their conversation so nothing suspicious seems to be going on with the two of them then i think like the fourth time that percy wakes up he sees a blonde man who is in a corner with like a bajillion eyeballs all over his body and I know who this is and if you've read the books before then you know who this is and he is a wonderful man and I love him very very much but Percy goes on to say that he feels like his mouth has been um, used by a scorpion for a nest and first of all how does anybody know what that feels like how does how does Percy know what it feels like to have a scorpion nesting in his mouth First of all, I don't even want to think about that because it sounds absolutely horrendous and it gives me the heebie-jeebies. But if Percy doesn't know how that feels, how does Rick feel? Like, how does Rick know what that's like? I mean, I'm sure he just made it up. But what kind of brain do you have to have in order to make something up like that? I mean, it's just, it really gets the point across. And I just, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. And I'm sure none of you like that description either. And if you do, I think you need some help. Anyways, moving on, I wrote in my notes in all caps, GROVER IS BACK! Because I was really excited. Because Percy is awake on the big house porch now. Still exhausted, feels like his bones are like melted and all that jazz, which, you know, is certainly a feeling. He notes that Grover is dressed in a CHB shirt, Camp Half-Blood shirt, which is the first time we see one of those. So that's exciting. Um, Grover is also the sweetest human being to ever grace the universe, 
because he is just, he's so amazed that Percy saved his life. Like, he's so grateful and, you know, he, he almost, it makes it sound like he expects Percy to have just abandoned him. Like, he expected Percy to just leave his unconscious body there on the hill and get to camp himself and, you know, if Grover got eaten, he got eaten. And so he gives Percy the Minotaur horn which is so sweet because he even like wraps it up and puts it in a little shoe box. And he tells Percy that apparently he's been unconscious for two days, which is a long time, but I too would need a two-day nap if I went through what Percy went through. So Percy, you know, he's trying to take all of this in. He's in a whole different environment, someplace he's never been before. He's trying to come to terms with the events of the previous chapter, having fought the Minotaur, and not just fought it, but killed it, and then trying to grapple with the realization that his friend, his best friend is a satyr, and that his mom has died. During all of this, Percy's trying to take in his environment and the camp, and he says that the big pine tree looked really pretty, and I thought that was really cute and very sweet. Some of you know why. But then he hits us. He hits us with this just heart-wrenching, line and I'm going to read it really fast it says my mother was gone the whole world should be black and cold nothing should look beautiful and I just reading that uh, that surprised me because when I was little it probably that line probably went right over my head but when you're older the gravity of that really hits you and if you've lost somebody important in your life then you know that Loss is something that's very hard to come to terms with. The fact that someone you know, somebody you care about, was there in person, physically one moment, and suddenly there's no physicality to the memories that you have of that person. And for a 12-year-old boy like Percy to put into words what a lot of us feel when we're grieving is just really incredible and the description of it it just it really drives home the like it really drives home the point how much he loves his mom and how even in such a short period of time since the incident with the minotaur and his mother he's already feeling that loss like there wasn't really much of a moment for shock because he was in a fight or flight situation and he had to fight for survival so he didn't really have time to go through that denial period at this point, he's skipped over that, and he's already reckoning with the fact that his mom is gone. She is not coming back. And Grover seems to read Percy's mind in this situation, because Grover gets really upset, and he says that he's a failure, and that he's the worst satyr ever in the whole world, essentially. And I just, it isn't true, in my opinion. And why that is, is because... He watched Percy successfully for a whole school year, managed to find him after getting ditched at a bus stop, which is probably not an easy feat, especially the fact that, sure, Grover probably knew where Percy lived, but he probably didn't really know that Percy had a special spot in Montauk on the beach. So the fact that he was able to find that, especially as quickly as he did, is pretty freaking impressive. Grover was also able to keep his identity a secret, despite jerks like Nancy Bobblefit, and He's immediately concerned about Percy's feelings the moment that Percy officially wakes up and is actually staying awake. And we can also infer 
that Grover is the one who helped move Percy outside so that Percy wasn't stuck in a dreary room for hours on end in a completely unfamiliar environment, just, you know, laying helpless in a bed. And I think that that's really sweet, and it really shows us how much of a good friend that Grover is and how much he really does care about Percy and Percy's feelings. In previous chapters, we definitely got a sense of that. You know, he was really aware of the danger that Percy was in, but not just that, the mortal aspects of of Percy's life. He was aware that, you know, Percy didn't like Nancy. Percy had, had a mutual hatred towards her because Percy has a strong moral compass and he is very verbal about what he agrees with and what he disagrees with. And Grover has seen the side of Percy on numerous occasions and he respects it and he understands it and he knows that before any of this happened, Percy didn't know about this this secret universe where, where satyrs and minotaurs actually existed. To Percy, only the mortal world existed, so Grover had to be aware of those mortal situations, those mortal feelings, things that weren't tied into the mythical realm of possibility. He had to treat Percy as if Percy was 100% human before anything else, which means that Grover befriended a person and not necessarily a demigod. At least in a weird, twisted, metaphorical sense. Because yes, Percy has always been a demigod, but Percy wasn't aware of that. And so Grover had to learn to appreciate Percy for who he was before he was Percy the demigod. Moving on, we can... Well, first of all, (laughs) I just want to say that Percy considers joining the army so he doesn't have to live with Smelly Gabe. And... (sighs) That is, ex- that is very, very extreme. But I don't blame him because I wouldn't want to live with Smelly Gabe either. Smelly Gabe is a horrible excuse for a human being. But at the same time, I don't think Percy can pass off as a 17-year-old if he's only 12. Also, Percy with a gun is both really freaking cool, but also a very, very scary concept. Because I myself, a person with ADHD should not be trusted with anything pointy, sharp, or explosive, because I may have the best intentions for those objects, but I always find a way of accidentally hurting myself. So I'm just letting you know from personal experience, it's probably not the best idea to give Percy a gun. Anyways, uh, in Percy's internal monologue, he calls Grover a kid, which is really funny to me because Percy, you're 12. You are 12 stinking years old. Grover is way older he I just it's so funny to me that he's calling someone who you know he doesn't really know is older than him at the time someone it's Grover's just like another kid who's his age it's so funny that he's referring to him as kid so I think part of that is just Rick Riordan's you know inner dad coming out but that just gave me a good chuckle because all I could think was just Percy you're 12 years old why why are you calling this other person a kid Um, Percy also says, and something that is really sad to me, he says that Grover looked so miserable about believing that he failed Percy and that he failed Percy's mom, that he expected to be hit, which begs the question, one, Percy knows what someone looks like when they're afraid of being hit or what they look like just before they're about to be hit, and two, 
it kind of brings in the idea that Grover may have actually been hit before, if this is a reaction that is recurrent in this chapter, which it is. And that's kind of an interesting topic because it's not really discussed or brought up ever again after this. Um, so, so yeah, that was an interesting description. If anybody has any sort of ideas or, or theories, um, don't hesitate to share those because I would love to hear them. I couldn't really come up with any on my own at the time because I was just too excited to read, but I would absolutely love to hear yours. Uh, Grover, Grover, grow. You know, sometimes English is hard, and this is one of those moments because apparently, despite the fact that I've said Grover's name like 20 times, I suddenly forgot how to say it. Anyways, Grover is stealing my heart. He feels like a failure, but as soon as Percy gets worked up about near like about his mom and and the fight in the Minotaur and basically this whole revelation that he's not necessarily a normal kid he gets really lightheaded and he's gonna faint and then Grover immediately goes to help Percy and Grover forgets all of his own worries and suddenly he's just there to take care of Percy he's there to be Percy's friend and I think that's just really sweet and I just I love Grover so much in case you couldn't tell he is the best boy in all the land and Percy, uh, he helps Percy drink the nectar, which Percy doesn't know is nectar at the time, but he will later. And Percy says it tastes like liquid cookies, and all I can think of is, can liquid cookies please be a thing? Like, that would be so cool. I mean, it has the potential to be really disgusting, but if it's anything like Percy describes, that would be absolutely amazing, and I would die a little bit. So Percy drinks the nectar, and Grover asks him how he feels, and Percy, <laughs> Percy without missing a beat, says, like I could throw Nancy Boba Fit a hundred yards. And I'm not gonna lie, I ugly snorted reading that line. But despite this, Percy is still all wobbly-legged, um, as you'd expect, uh, when he is told to follow Mr. Brunner, um, those of you, well, actually all of you, you can't see that, I did, did air quotes with, with my fingers, but Mr. Brunner to meet Mr. D and Grover takes him there but in the process he offers to hold the the minotaur horn that he gave Percy and Grover bless your little satyr heart that's the minotaur horn horn is probably not that heavy but he's just he's so cute he's just like you know Percy's probably a little independent and won't let me really help like support his weight but I'll offer to take the minotaur horn in the shoebox it's just it's so cute guys I just I love their friendship it's beautiful however we uh get a brief description of camp Uh, I'm not really gonna go too deep into it but it's just even rereading it now it's just so so magical and beautiful and I couldn't stop smiling while reading it and my face started to hurt because I was just grinning from ear to ear like the Cheshire cat because that is just, that's my home to an extent, you know, Percy Jackson, when I read it the first time, was really what got me into reading, I didn't really read books before that, and then after Percy Jackson, I read all the time, so I really have Rick and Percy to thank for introducing me to the world of of fantasy and, and adventure and reading, and so Camp Half-Blood has always had a special place in my heart, so getting to kind of revisit it for the first time again is just so wonderful. 
Uh, we also learned that satyrs are playing volleyball with some other campers, and I just imagining a satyr play volleyball like they probably are really good at playing volleyball because with their goat legs and everything they're really agile and they could probably jump really flipping high to like spike or block a ball and so I feel like it's a little bit of a disadvantage to the campers to be playing against some satyrs but you know at the same time it's camp half-blood and if I could I would watch a volleyball game there but unfortunately I can't uh, interestingly enough, Percy goes on to note that some campers are riding horses. He says that only some of the horses have wings. And I could have sworn that all the horses at camp were actually just pegasi. But I guess they actually have normal horses, which would make sense to an extent, because hang, hang, hang with me here for a little bit. You have someone like Percy who is just 12 years old, alright? They're probably, they've probably never ridden a horse before in their lives. So, putting them on a flying horse right off the bat is probably not the best idea. So it would make sense to me, looking back on it, that they would have normal horses, so you can know how to ride a normal horse first before throwing someone into the air to ride a flying horse. So, you know, that makes sense, but I, I just, I totally forgot that they have actual normal horses there. So that's just a note that was kind of surprising to me. But, you know, thinking on it, it, it makes it makes a lot more uh, a lot more sense. Um, Percy then, after noting this, meets Dionysus. And I just I have to I have to read the description of of Dionysus because it's just it's so good. Um, the passage reads, the man facing me was small but porky. He had a red nose, big watery eyes and curly hair so black it was almost purple. He looked like those paintings of baby angels. What do you call them? Uh, the hubbubs? No, no, no. Cherubs. That's it. He looked like a cherub who'd turned middle-aged in a trailer park. He wore a tiger-patterned Hawaiian shirt, and he would have fit right in at one of Gabe's poker parties, except I got the feeling this guy could have outgambled even my stepfather. First of all, I would like to say that I would love to watch Gabe get his butt kicked by Dionysus at a poker game. That would be really fun and very satisfying. For me personally. Um, but it's interesting because Percy doesn't like Dionysus, or at this point we know him as just Mr. D. And I wonder how much of that is just because his first impression is that connection to Gabe. He associates Mr. D immediately with Gabe. And so there's already an interesting tension there before Percy and Mr. D even really interact with each other and you really get the sense that Percy's very off put by by this man as the the scene progresses but before we get there we have <laughs> we have we have Grover introduce Annabeth as just a camper like Grover come on I'm gonna be spoiler-free, or as spoiler-free as possible, as you guys know. But those of you who have read the books know why this is upsetting to me. Because, like, she... She's not just another camper, at least not to him. And so that, to me, is just off-putting in a way, but it's also kind of funny. So... <laughs> Grover then, you know after introducing Annabeth, gets distracted by Dionysus because Dionysus just wants to play his pinnacle game. But first of all, what the heck 
is Pinnacle. I've never heard of that aside from in Percy Jackson, and I have no idea what the concept of the game is, like how you play or anything like that. So if anybody knows what that game actually is or what it's based off of, please let me know because I have absolutely no clue and it is driving me nuts through this whole chapter because they use different terms for it and it just goes right over my head. Secondly, Percy gets so happy to see Mr. Brunner slash Chiron and it is so freaking cute. He is so elated, so happy because he thought that that was going to be the last time that he saw Mr. Brunner slash Chiron, you know, two chapters ago. And so watching him get that elated is fantastic because we've all had that one teacher that we just absolutely love. And that if we, you know, whenever we saw them, we would get so happy and we would grin and we'd, we just have a brilliant time with them. And that's definitely the sense that we have with, with Percy and his concept of Mr. Brunner slash Chiron. We also get the classic, and I wrote in all caps, you drool when you sleep. I cannot tell you how much I fangirled over this. It was amazing. I love it so much. Classic Anna, classic Annabeth. And she, she just, you know, runs off after saying something like that. Totally disses Percy because he's sitting there all smug thinking she's going to compliment him for, for killing the Minotaur and having the Minotaur horn. And she's just couldn't really care less. And it's fantastic. Uh, Percy then gets roped back into the Pinnacle discussion and talking to Mr. D. And Mr. D is basically like, you know, Pinnacle is one of the best games in the world except for some other game that I'm forgetting the name of and Pac-Man. And I kind of have to agree with Mr. D. Pac-Man is an amazing game. I used to play it all the time on my mom's original PlayStation. And it was really, really fun. And I was actually pretty good at it. Uh, nowhere near as good as Mr. D is at Pac-Man. But I'll toot my own horn a little bit. But that's when my respect for Mr. D ends because he disrespects Sally Jackson. You know, Percy's explaining basically what he knows about camp, which is essentially that, you know, his mom mentioned how his dad wanted him to go to this camp and she didn't really want to get, didn't really want to give him up because it would mean potentially not seeing him again. And Dionysus just goes, oh, you know, classic. That's kind of how it always is. No wonder X, Y, and Z happened. And I just, first of all, rude, okay? This 12-year-old boy just watched his mom die in front of him. He was unconscious after fighting a Minotaur, which you probably haven't fought, Mr. D. And you're just going to whip out the insults on his mom like that? How dare you? Don't like you. My respect for you in the Pac-Man comment has gone out the window. You are a turd. And I'm going to leave it at that because I don't want to talk about anything in future books involving Mr. D. Now, interestingly enough, Percy does learn that Mr. D is Dionysus, which brings into discussion the capital G God. And I've always loved how Rick always alludes to the capital G God, but he never goes in depth. And it's insanely frustrating because I kind of want to know what his take on it is, especially in the Percy Jackson universe. But it's also mysterious, and I kind of like that he doesn't bother going too far into depth in that. Um, without spoiling too much, he does kind of allude to the capital G God again in the third book. And so it's popped up once or twice, maybe three times, and we never get a direct answer. And I think that's just kind of, I think it adds to a little bit of the wonder in the universe. 
but this is all because Percy's trying to wrestle with the fact that he's just been told that the Greek gods are real. And Percy, without missing a beat, basically looks at Mr. D slash Dionysus and says, Oh, you know, you're a god, you, which really offends Dionysus. But I have to admit that Mr. D has a point, um, how science in 2,000 years will seem silly. And it's kind of spot on because, I mean, science from 2,000 years ago for us seems kind of ridiculous and silly. And so he's essentially saying, you know, how would you feel if um, science, say, was replaced with gods? So in that sentence, you would be like, oh, those gods are, are silly or, or stupid or that sort of thing. So he's saying, you know, religion and science aren't entirely that different in the fact that as time progresses, a lot of times aspects of religion are seen as stupid or silly or funny, but aspects of science are also seen as stupid and silly and funny. So that's another interesting um, interesting conversation point uh, during this, this talk with uh, Chiron and, and Dionysus and Percy and even Grover, but Grover is mainly minding his business and eating a soda can. Now, Percy is trying to come to terms with the fact that not only are the Greek gods real, but that means that all the monsters he learned about in Mr. Brunner slash Chiron's class are real. Uh, despite having fought the Minotaur, he still has his doubts. But, I mean, he's just, he's in denial at this point. Like, the shock of that situation that he didn't have previously is now starting to come around. But at the same time, it's like, dude, you fought a giant hairy bull, man. I don't really think that you can kind of ignore that aspect of your life anymore but you know it's been it's been ages since I have read the myth on how Dionysus was was born and stuff but I mean come on because we learn that Dionysus is at camp because Zeus decided that some wood nymph was off limits and I want to say that Dionysus no, he wasn't. I was going to say that Dionysus was the offspring of some some nymph, but sh but he's not. I know that. Anyways, before I get too confused in my mythology, again, it's it's been a long time. The fact that Zeus is mad at Dionysus for essentially going after an off-limits, again, I did air quotes, uh, nymph, is just, it's ridiculous. Because anybody who's read or heard of Greek mythology, knows that Zeus, Zeus doesn't care about rules when they apply to him. He will break them. He will break all of them. But the moment rules apply to someone else, and that person breaks the rules, he loses his freaking mind. I just, it makes me so upset to think about it. And, you know, I kind of understand where Dionysus is coming from. Having a dad who just goes willy-nilly all over the place, having offspring and kids and stuff, then to be told, oh, you know, that wood nymph was off limits, you broke the rules. Now you have to be grounded for a thousand years is just insane. But we also learn, for some reason, Zeus is responsible for prohibition in the United States. I mean, I never caught this in my first read, but at the same time, I was like, you know, eight and then I also didn't understand what prohibition was the other few times that I've read the books. That or I just wasn't paying attention. But apparently he had prohibition happen in the U.S. as a way to ground Dionysus the first time he tried to go after an off-limits nymph. Uh, we also get the fact or the idea that <laughs> the gods are a little out of touch with 
the the modern world world because Dionysus looks at Ed Grover and says, "What do the kids see, say these days?" Well, duh. Like what? What the heck, Dionysus? You know, I you can't be. That is not an expression that anybody uses. I'm like as I guess you could say a cool slang term. People say that all the time just to get get a point across. So that's it's just it's the whole interaction with with him is funny and Grover Grover just agrees because he doesn't want to make Dionysus mad and get you know in trouble for it. But it just cracks me up because he's like, "What do the kids say?" Well, duh, no Dionysus. Everybody says that when they're trying to get a point across. So that's just it's a joke, but it's also almost an unbelievable joke because we learned that the gods are the heart of the West and at the moment the U.S. is the heart of the West, which means you would think they'd be a lot more up to date on American culture and everything that's going on in America. But you get the sense that that is not the case. Now, it could be excused with the fact that Dionysus is technically stuck at the camp, so he can't really leave and then, you know, learn about the mortal world. But I just, I don't know. I just, I, I get that it's for comedy's sake, but it also seems a little unbelievable that he wouldn't know more modern slang. Now, this hysterical moment gets immediately shut down by the fact that Dionysus shows Percy images of drunk warriors insane on battle lust, people turning into dolphins, and visions of people getting choked out by by vines like Dionysus this kid this 12 year old little boy just fought a monster watched his best friend go unconscious got his car blown up by lightning and watched his mom die in front of him and you think it's okay to just mentally scar him again with these images like I understand you're trying to prove a point that you're a powerful god and not to be taken lightly but I mean come on how much of a jerk do you have to be like, if I was Percy, I would nope out of that situation so fast, but Percy doesn't do that. And this is when we really get into the discussion of how Olympus follows uh, the fire of the West. And we learn that the gods have been in Germany and France and, and Spain at different points in history, which probably explains a lot of the major historical events that have taken place in those countries. Which, you know, I never really noticed the first few times that I read the story, um, but that also makes sense. And um, again, I, like I said, I'm trying not to be super uh, spoilery, but we learned that the gods had a huge part in World War II, which involved obviously England and, and Germany and France and that sort of thing. And so part of that might have been because the fire of the West moved to all of those countries. But this conversation, unfortunately, gets cut kind of short. And, you know, Chiron decides, hey, you know, let, let, me, let me show you around camp. Um, because he can kind of tell that Mr. D is getting impatient with Percy. And Mr. D takes Grover into the big house to give him a talking to. Which uh, Percy is really, really upset about. He, um, he asks Chiron, you know, is Grover going to be okay? Which is really sweet because... Up until this point, I've really been talking about how, how much Grover cares about Percy. But we also see that Percy really does care about Grover, too. They really, they bonded in, in an environment at UNC Academy that was really kind of toxic, uh, especially for Percy. And, and Grover is kind of Percy's safe place in, in that situation. And now that Percy doesn't have his mom, 
the only other individual who he can really feel safe with is is Grover and obviously Mr. Brunner slash slash Kyron. Um, and so Kyron, you know, mentions, hey, we can have, we're going to have s'mores at, at the campfire tonight. And he says, I really love s'mores. And I just, does chocolate, does chocolate, like, kill horses? Like, I know chocolate's bad for dogs, but is chocolate bad for horses? Can somebody tell me yes or no or, or give me an explanation on that? Because if so, Kyron, I, I have concerns about your life choices. Also, I, I just wrote in all caps, PONY, because Chiron reveals, well, technically Mr. Brunner at this point reveals that he is Chiron, the, the centaur, because he's been in his wheelchair this whole time, and we get the grand reveal of, of Mr. Brunner slash Chiron stepping out of the, the wheelchair, and Percy realizing, oh, wow. So my, my Latin teacher was actually a centaur in a wheelchair this entire time, which is really funny, but, you know, it, it's a good transition because it leads into the next chapter, chapter 6, I Become Supreme Lord of the Bathroom. And Percy talks about how he's following Chiron around camp, but he won't walk behind Chiron because he doesn't trust Chiron's back end, which, first of all, insults to centaurs i'm pretty sure that like humans they can kind of control when they poop but percy just puts in this throwaway line of you know being on pooper scooper duty for not just one but apparently many macy's day thanksgiving macy's thanksgiving day parades which first of all i want to know how he managed to get that job not once but on multiple occasions and if he didn't like it the first time why did he do it again so that is just really weird to me. And we don't really get any elaboration on that, and we don't get that elaborated on in any of the other books. So I think that was just a bit of a throwaway line on Rick's part, but I would certainly love to have more of a backstory on that. That would be kind of an interesting short story, I feel. Anyways, um, we learned that the big house is is a sky blue color, and for some reason I just I can't get behind it. Like, I know that it's always been a sky blue color. But for me, I've always imagined it as just like this big, brown, you know, homey sort of cabin. For whatever reason, the sky blue just has never been in, in, my, in my brain. So if you guys have any sort of um, images of what the big house looks like that isn't the sky blue color or anything like that, I would love to know what those, what those are. Because everybody pictures things differently, even if it's stated in canon that you know the big house is blue some people might think it's red heck if you think it's purple that's cool too you know um anyways we get this uh first reference to the attic of the big house as percy's walking with Kyron, he looks over his shoulder he notes that the big house is blue but he also sees a curtain move in the attic and he feels like he's being watched well those of you who who know what's there um I'm kind of confused as to how the curtain is moved, considering what is in the attic and how that thing doesn't move until later. So that seems like a little bit of a plot hole, but I won't focus too much on that because, again, I don't really want to spoil anything. And so Percy asks Kyron, you know, what's in the attic? And Kyron has this very interesting line of not a single living thing when Percy asks about it. And those of you who uh, know what's in the attic, uh, 
you will understand this line. It's very, it's not a lie, but it's not necessarily true either. There's a lot of implications in this, in this bit of text, and it's very well written, and I really, really like it. So um, it's amazing to me that Rick can write basically one, one sentence of dialogue and have it have such an impact on the future of the story and, and what we learn uh, about the surrounding lore for Camp Half-Blood. Uh, speaking of lore, we also learn that satyrs mature half as fast as humans, and so Grover is apparently 28 which was mind-blowing to me because I don't ever remember hearing that fact at all, even though I've read the first book like seven times. Um, However, despite being 28 in Seder years, Grover is apparently the equivalent of a middle schooler and has been the equivalent of a middle schooler for like six years, which Percy rightfully says is horrible, and I agree. I can't imagine being stuck as like a fifth grader for six years. That is atrocious to think about, and I would hate it. But we also learn that Grover is apparently small for his age, which begs the question, you know, what is normal for a satyr at 28 years of age? And and how small is he for his age compared to other satyrs? Um, we also learn that Grover had an incident with his first job as keeper, which happened only five years prior. Uh, my first few times reading it, I always, for whatever reason, I never bothered to do the math. Uh, math's not my favorite thing in the world. But I always assumed that it was a lot earlier than five years, like seven or something like that. So it's relatively recent when you think about it. And so that's pretty neat. Um, Percy tries to get, you know, answers out of it. But but Grover, uh, not Grover, uh, Kyron doesn't really answer what happened five years ago. Um, and instead talks about the Council of Cloven Elders, which I just wrote in my notes were big stinky heads. And those of you who have read the other books know why I think they are big stinky heads. However, I hate that Kyron just keeps changing the subject on Percy anytime Percy asks a question that he doesn't want to answer. Because he knows Percy is going to get distracted by it. Because Percy has ADHD. And as a person with ADHD... When I'm in a conversation with someone and I ask a question and all of a sudden they like change the topic, my brain doesn't usually stick on that question. My brain immediately thinks of another question that has to do with the different topic. So it's a really good technique on Kyron's part, but I also think it's a little unfair to Percy because Percy has just gone through a huge traumatic experience. He has a right to know what is going on. He has a right to know about his friend's past not just Grover he knew in middle school, but Seder Grover's past and what happened there. However, I guess Kyron might want Grover to divulge that information himself, um, which if that's the case, you know, kudos to Kyron for not really spilling the beans on that because Grover has a right to decide if he wants Percy to know that information or not, especially considering the context of that information. Uh, however, you know, Kyron throws in the line about capture the flag, and Percy's like, well, let's capture the flag, and Kyron's essentially just like, you'll figure out what it is on Friday, and he says that Percy looks like a size arm, uh, size 5 armor would fit him, and if armor sizes are as bad as American clothing sizes, it's not gonna fit Percy, I'm sorry, but like, you get a size 5 pants at one store, and you go to another store to get a size 5 pair of pants, and suddenly it's like a size 7 or a size 8. Like, standardized American clothing sizes suck. 
And so if they're standardized armor sizes, they're probably going to suck too. Just a little tidbit. Moving on, Chiron takes Percy to the dining hall very briefly. And I did not remember the dining hall tables being stone. It makes sense because it would be like a lot easier to clean up stone slab tables but also that would be so uncomfortable for your butt like sitting on on stone benches cannot be fun for anybody's tailbone i don't care who you are i mean i've sat down on stone like that before and after maybe about 30 minutes it starts to get really uncomfortable so hopefully all of these kids eat fast or for whatever reason there's like magical seat cushions that appear during dinner time now, Percy is more interested in the basketball hoops than the dining hall, and he says that the basketball hoops were more his speed, which makes me ask, does he play, did he play basketball a lot at, at Yancey Academy, or did he just play basketball, you know, like on the playground and, and that sort of thing? And if so, is basketball like his, his favorite sport? It just, you know, uh, it seems like he has more of a vested interest in, in that sport than really anything else because they've mentioned volleyball and um you know i'm sure you could play soccer at camp so um i bet you at some point percy's gonna play some b-ball and hopefully he's really good at it because that'd be amazing anyways Kyron takes percy to where all of the cabins are set up and they are set up in a u formation with two cabins on the left and right at the end so it kind of looks more like a horseshoe than just a u and some of the descriptions of the cabins are adorable so the Hephaestus cabin has a bunch of little smokestacks on, on the roof, um, which is kind of cute because it just makes me think of a little small compact like factory machinist shop or whatever. The Demeter cabin has tomatoes growing on the walls and apparently an all grass roof, which is kind of like really impressive and cool. Thank God they don't get a lot of bad weather at camp because that roof might not really hold up against that. But the aesthetic is there, so I give them credit for that. And then we get to Apollo's cabin, which is uh, Percy describes as looking to be made of all gold. And the amount of, like, I just, hmm. Apollo, we discover, is very narcissistic. But the fact that he made his cab, like, it would have to be so hot in there. I'm sorry, but the, the metal would retain a lot of heat, and it's constantly reflecting sunlight, so it's probably, like, permanently blinding campers that walk by it. It just doesn't seem like, doesn't seem like a good building material choice. But then again, you know, if Apollo wanted his cabin a certain way, he probably doesn't really care how it looks, just so long as it fits what he wants. Anyways, there's, you know, this big field in the middle about... I think Percy describes it as either soccer field size or football field size. And there's a hearth there. And he's, like, really surprised that there's there's a fire there, especially because it's apparently, like, 90 degrees in New York or something like that. And there's a nine-year-old girl there poking the fire with a stick. And y'all who've read the note, who've read the books know who that is. And I love her. But I'm not going to spoil anything, so I'm going to move on before I can. Now... The Ares cabin is bright red and appears to be painted with splashed on paints of buckets and as if kids used their fists as paintbrushes instead of actual brushes. Which is a funny image because I'm just imagining a bunch of Ares kids dipping their hands in buckets of red paint and then just punching the walls. Probably not the most efficient way to get something done, but definitely an Ares way to get something done. Now, Percy asks Chiron 
you know, why are you the only centaur here? And Chiron very disappointedly says that his kinsmen are wild and barbaric folk, which, you know, brings up a lot of questions and implications that actually get explored in later books, which is kind of neat and exciting. Then Percy asks, you know, how Chiron is, is alive and how he could possibly be this old and if Chiron will ever actually, you know, fade away. And Chiron says that he can't, he can't fade or, or die as long as the demigod world or mortal world still needs him. And he says he obviously is still needed or he would have faded or quote-unquote died a while ago. Uh, after this, Chiron doesn't really want to talk about that anymore, and I can't blame him because no one really wants to talk about their, their death. And so we meet Cabin Eleven, which is the Hermes Cabin. And at this point, Chiron has passed off Percy to Annabeth so that Annabeth can finish the tour for him because Chiron has to go teach an archery class. Annabeth tells Percy when, you know, showing him the cabin, um, you know, to go in and meet everybody, and Percy says, naturally I tripped upon entering, making a complete fool of myself. And you know, to be honest, I too would probably make a complete fool of myself when meeting somebody for the first time. And Percy, it's okay, I still love you, you're adorable, even if you're a little bit clumsy, and I think it was a spectacular entrance. Now, upon entering, people ask Percy if he is regular or undetermined, and this is the first hint um, to something that becomes very important in later chapters and, and in later books. And this is also when we learn that Cabin 11 is the, the Hermes Cabin, and so... Regular means that they are demigods of Hermes. In other words, Hermes is their dad. And undetermined means that they haven't been claimed, so they don't know who their godly parent is. And Luke, who we discover is the head counselor, described as tall, tan, blonde-haired, and blue-eyed, with a long white scar running down the right side of his face. Um, he, he tells Percy that, you know, Hermes is the patron of, of travelers, and that they it's their job to take in everybody who's unclaimed at camp. And this cabin is jam-packed with people. The bunks are full. There's people sleeping on sleeping bags in, in the floor. And essentially, Percy gets the one small open corner in the room that's left over. So this place is just full, full of campers. Some Hermes kids, majority of them are not. And it's a kind of an unfortunate situation because, you know, they don't really know who they are. Percy doesn't know who he is. And then you have those who do know who they are, and, and they feel like their personal space is kind of being robbed by, by these other people. And so it's just, it's a hot mess. Anyways, um, Percy eventually uh, leaves the cabin after Annabeth kind of gets mad at him, and Percy and Annabeth get into their first argument. And Annabeth just straight up calls him Jackson, and says, you have to do better than that, and I can't believe I thought you were the one. First of all, Annabeth, you just whipped out that last name so freaking fast. You've known him for, like, five minutes. Yes, we know you, like, nursed him back to health. And Kyron tells you that she nursed you back to health. But come on, man. Seriously. Also, Percy is kind of, you know, upset naturally speaking, because the whole you have to do better than that, that line kind of reminds him of, of Chiron or Mr. Brunner telling him that he has to do better. And Percy has absolutely no idea why Annabeth is telling him this, and he has no idea what she means by you might be the one. Um, so Percy is basically asking Annabeth, like, how do you, how do you know my last name? 
how do you know about X, Y, and Z? And Emmeth tells Percy that he also talks in his sleep. So not only does Percy drool, but he also talks in his sleep. We also learn that when you kill a monster, it doesn't really stay dead. And, and Percy is surprised by this, naturally, because his first thing is, well, the Minotaur could come back now that I've killed it, or, or Mrs. Dodds could come back now that I've killed her. And Annabeth has to explain to him that if you're lucky, it'll take a lifetime for a monster to reform, but in most cases, it doesn't. They just vaporize into gold dust, go to Tartarus for a while, and eventually they inevitably come back. Um, Percy is basically um, kind of affronted by this because he's like, well, you don't know who I am. How could you possibly relate to me? And Annabeth goes, well, you know, I bet you have dyslexia. I bet you have a hard time reading, you know, words because your your brain's hardwired to read ancient Greek text. And she just goes on and on and on and basically explains to Percy, you have ADHD because it's your battle reflexes so that when you get into dangerous situations, you don't have to think about defending yourself. Your Your body just does it for you. The um, attention issue with ADHD is because you see more than mortals do. You see the monsters and that sort of thing. And the one issue I have during this, this discussion is that Annabeth brings up the fact that most teachers want you medicated because they're monsters, which implies that being medicated for your ADHD is a bad thing. And it's not. In a lot of cases, it is extremely helpful for people. It was helpful for me. Uh, it helped me do better in my math classes because it was really hard for me to organize my thoughts on paper and to organize my work, and so I wasn't performing as well as I could until after I was medicated. So I think it kind of puts getting medicated for your ADHD in, in a bad light, and I don't think that it should. Getting medicated for anything that might inhibit your, um, what should you say, your ease of life. Um, I, that's not really the right words, but they're not coming to me right now. Um, I think that it's, it's okay um, to have that or to ask for it. Um, but after this, we meet somebody, and I wrote in all claps, cl all claps, wow, uh, all caps, Clarice. Um, I got really excited. Um, I actually gave her name like five R's and like six S's um, because I typed so fast. Anyways, Clarice uh, basically wants to initiate Percy into the camp. Um, and you get the impression that she does this with most or, or all campers. And Percy kind of looks to Annabeth for help, or, or at least Annabeth tries to defend him. Annabeth's like, you know, Clarice, come on, you don't have to do this. You know, he just got here. His mom just died. You know, he killed the Minotaur, and, and Clarice isn't having it. Clarice is like, well, you know, wise girl, shut up. Which, honestly, I was kind of surprised. I don't remember Clarice being the first person to call Annabeth wise girl, but apparently she is. But Clarice also calls Percy Prissy, which kind of made me laugh a little bit because it reminds me a lot of, of Mr. D, because Mr. D is known for mispronouncing demigod names on purpose. And we get our first use of the term Big Three, because as Clarice is taking Percy to the camp bathrooms, she and her friends are planning on dunking his head in the toilet. And she says something along the lines of, he can't possibly be Big Three material. And at this point in the story, we don't know what she means by that. Um, but you get the sense that it's tied into Annabeth's 
uh, insistence that Percy might be the one. Now, what I find interesting is that Annabeth has followed them all the way into the bathroom. Granted, this is the, the girls' bathroom. And she's just standing in the corner watching this go down. Uh, she's described as peeking through her fingers because, you know, she kind of wants to see what's going on, but she also kind of doesn't. And Percy is about to get his head dunked in the toilet, and he's describing how horrible it smells, and I'm not going to describe it to you because you don't really need to know how disgusting a public bathroom is. If you have used one, you probably know. So he's like three inches away from getting his face dunked in that toilet water, and all of a sudden he gets a tug in his gut, and the toilet water arcs up over his head and splashes Clarice in the face. Naturally, Clarice is very disgusted, as anybody would be if they got a bunch of nasty toilet water in their face. But it doesn't just stop there, because all of a sudden, the other toilets start exploding and shooting water out, and they are getting Clarice's friends soaked. The showers start acting up. So basically, any pipeline in the bathroom is starting to shoot water out, and it's just hosing Clarice down, and it's hosing her friends down. And they get basically, like, rocketed out of the bathroom by a huge hose of water. And Annabeth, poor Annabeth, <laughs> she's drenched. Um, Percy kind of expects her to be grossed out by it, but she's too impressed by what just happened to really even care that she is currently soaked with toilet water. But Percy's surprised because he is completely dry. And there's a little circle of, of dry floor that he's sitting in, and he doesn't really understand how the entire bathroom could be flooded and he's got not a single drop of water on him. But he and Annabeth kind of slosh the way out of the bathroom, and Clarice is livid. Clarice wants to kill him, but thankfully her, her friends kind of pick her up out of the, the big mud puddle and carry her off back to, to their cabin. And Annabeth is just standing there looking at Percy, and Percy's kind of confused by this because he still expects her to be really mad at him for getting her soaked with toilet water. And he, he looks at her and he goes, what? And she just goes, I'm thinking that I want you on my Capture the Flag team. Which is really funny and seems kind of like a throwaway line. But it comes into play later, and uh, when we get to the Capture the Flag chapter I will probably revisit this line and talk more about it because there's a lot more here than I originally thought when I first read the book like five times throughout my lifespan and so Annabeth definitely has a plan she she means a lot more with that line than just oh you know you impressed me with your water powers I want you on my capture the flag team and so that is where this chapter ends. Chapter 6 ends with Annabeth essentially saying, I want you on my team for Capture the Flag, and Percy being really confused by that because he's just soaked everybody in toilet water. And so, yeah, Percy has just kind of gotten his first introduction to Camp Half-Blood. And he's starting to come to terms with things, but definitely is overwhelmed by it. And I don't blame him because there is a lot to learn, a lot to do, and a lot to experience, but we will continue that adventure in chapters 7 and 8. You can find me on numerous platforms, but if you would like to email the show, you can email me at simplesimonem at cox.net. Again, that's simplesimonem at cox.net. 
Uh, I'm your host, Emily, and until next time, I will see you on Olympus.